Uh, the person that's going to be coming and bringing the word this morning is Christy Gates, and I want to bring a slide up onto the screen. Actually, I won't bring it up. Uh, Mike Telfer will bring it up. Uh, here at Faith Community, we have 16 local slash global partners um, that we resource, that we partner, that we, um, that we support through your uh, giving. Um, you will, you could take, I'd encourage you to even zoom in and take a picture of the, the global partners that are up on the screen. They're on our website, faithsandiego.org. We'd love for you to be praying for uh, these local partners and even believing that God might even prompt your own heart um, for one of these areas of service and saying, I'd love to know more about whoever it is that's, that's up there on the screen. Um, so one of our local partners, Christy Gates, works with um, an organization that's on college campuses, um, that's reaching colleges and universities, and um, I'm going to invite her up, and she's going to give us a little bit more context about specifically what she does with, with college students and college ministries and Bible studies. Um, so would you welcome Christy Gates as she brings the word as well this morning. Thank you, Vince. It's good to be with you all. It's a little bit like returning home. My husband Marvin and I have now lived outside San Diego longer than we lived in San Diego, so it's starting to feel like a little bit more of a stretch to be here and try to figure out, wait, which direction and figure out the roads and wait, we lived, I think, that direction. I can't remember the name of it, you know, trying to get settled where you are. I also had a completely different outfit planned a few days ago when we started our trip. I had this really interesting plan, and then I may or may not have contracted poison ivy on my arms in Wisconsin a few days ago, and so I'm like, ah, oh, let's go with long sleeves today. And then our flight was delayed yesterday. We got in super late last night, so I'm in, still in that mode where I'm like, wait, here I am. I'm in San Diego. I'm in Faith Church. I'm remembering. I'm looking at faces. I'm, thank, thank you, Lord. I'm remembering names as I'm here getting to be with you all, so it feels like a return to home and also... I'm a voice from the outside, I realize. I'm someone who doesn't really know the community like I did a while ago, but I still trust that God has a word for us. And I want to do a little bit, I can tell you more about what I do with college students, but also I want to do a little bit more show than tell. So I will lead you in the scripture this morning in a way that helps us gain the posture that we try to cultivate in students as we help them get hungry to know God in scripture, to pursue a relationship with Jesus, and actually, if they don't know Jesus yet, to feel like it's a safe space to ask questions and pursue and, and wonder about who is God? Is God relevant? Does this matter for my life? So let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about myself before we jump in. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to be together, that you've brought us into this place to hear from you. We are eager, Lord, we're eager for you, eager for your word, and thank you for this community. I pray that you'd shed light on your scriptures and help us to understand you and know you more and grow closer to you and closer to each other this morning. Amen. So like Vince said, the role that I serve in, within our varsities, I'm the National Director of Scripture Engagement. That's fancy for how to help people meet God in scripture so that they can love God's word and join God's mission. That applies to all of us, not just college students. 
So of course that means leading Bible study. You can imagine, oh yeah, college students, I can picture them, maybe they're in a dorm room, they're studying the Bible together, or they're sitting at a table in the cafeteria on their campus and they're studying scripture together. It's all about leading scripture, yes. But even more, it's about loving scripture. And what I mean by loving scripture is, yeah, ultimately loving God through scripture or meeting with God through scripture so that I can love God more or loving ultimately God's word, who is Jesus. But all of that is via loving scripture because in scripture I can encounter God, step into God's story, love God's story, love scripture, and grow in all the ways that we hope. Community, prayer, worship, evangelism, justice, fill in the blank of something that you want to grow in from the Bible or you want this next generation of college students to grow in from the Bible. If they know how to meet God in scripture, love God, love God's word, love people, then all of those things will flow from that depth that they can have in God's word. So we're all about love scripture, lead scripture, love scripture, lead scripture. Yes, we train college students how to lead Bible study for their friends, and it's encouraging, actually. A lot of non-Christian college students will say yes to studying the Bible, not if I invite them, or you walk on campus and say, hi, I want to study the Bible with my church. Oh, that's a great opportunity, but they'll probably say no. They don't trust us, but they trust their friends. And if we train college students how to invite their friends to study the Bible, about a half of non-Christians will say yes, because a trusted friend invited them to study scripture and investigate Jesus for themselves. So yes, we're all about leading scripture. Students, go forward, lead scripture. But may your leadership of scripture not outpace your love for scripture, or you just turn into a machine, someone who pushes the Bible on people because you know it's the right thing, but the passion and the love behind it, the love for God, the love for people is missing. So we coach them, how do you get your love for scripture to keep up with your leadership of scripture? But how do you get someone to love scripture? I could lead a workshop all about how, how to lead, but how do you coach someone to get them to love scripture? That's mysterious. It feels like, I don't know, I guess you can't really train that. How do you even measure someone's love for scripture? That would be confusing. How, how could we actually do that? I won't ask you to answer this out loud, at least not yet. But in your mind right now, I want you to think, what is the temperature of my love for scripture? Is it red hot? Like, I can't wait to read the Bible again tomorrow, or maybe even later today. And even when it's fireworks, or when it's just a habit and it feels dull, I still am committed to loving God's word and reading daily. That's like hot temperature for loving scripture. Or maybe you're like, honestly, it's ice cold. I haven't read the Bible in a while. You know what, I've never really gotten into reading the Bible, maybe. I kind of hear it at church, but I don't know how to read it on my own, or it's confusing when I read it, or when I read it, I feel nothing, and so I just feel apathetic. That's more toward cold, or maybe you're just in the middle. You're like, eh, I read it, it's fine, that's all. But what's true is that it is possible, at least in our own self-awareness, to measure what is the temperature of my passion for scripture, or my love for scripture. Our love for scripture is something that we can be aware of, so I'm convinced also that it's something that can be cultivated in other people. If I were to make a recipe, this is not official, but it's just my study over a few years trying to figure out, I know that I love scripture. I've seen other people go from not loving the word to loving the word. And I'm trying to figure out what got them from here to here. 
because I would rather have them love scripture and have no idea how to study it than be really good at studying it but have no love. So how do I get someone from ah uh, to wow, I love the Bible, I just want to study more? There are six things that I would say. Some of them you might just be like, of course, like ingredient number one, scripture. Okay, of course, duh. Number, number two, ingredient, time. Oh, wow, like any other thing that really matters or any other relationship I want to develop in my life, I can't rush it? True, same thing. Loving scripture takes time. Ingredient number three, no agenda. Scripture is not a tool to use on someone else or to even use to get myself to feel a certain way. Scripture is God's story of God's people. Scripture is a place to meet with God. Scripture is an opportunity to participate in the story of God, not a tool to get myself or anybody else to do or feel any certain thing. So that's the third one, no agenda. Fourth, community. Yeah, I can read the Bible on my own. It's great. Please do that. But also there's something about loving scripture that's contagious, that we want to build in each other. So I want to also study scripture with other people. But then these last two I'll focus on pretty much the rest of the time I'm up here are curiosity and openness. If you've never heard out loud that curiosity when you study scripture is extremely important, that's the only thing I want you to walk away with, curiosity. And that means fighting against some of the lies, like the old saying, curiosity killed the cat. Or if somebody's ever told you, no, don't be so curious, don't ask questions, that's a sign of doubt or lack of faith. I say, no, it's actually a sign of faith to say God is big enough, God can answer any of my questions. Any curiosity that I have about scripture, I know that God can answer. Why are we afraid of asking God big questions? It's not a sign of doubt, it's a sign of faith. It's doubt if I'm too scared because I'm not sure how can I trust him. Is he strong enough to answer my questions? No. It's a sign of faith to lean in, to wonder, to seek with courage. So now I will actually ask you to answer a question, but not directly to me. So look around. If there's anybody sitting on their own, make sure that they kind of have somebody to talk to. It may be a group of two, three at the most. Don't be more than three or else, you know, when you're discussing, somebody's not going to get a chance. There's not going to be time. But in a group of two or three, here's the first question I'll have on the screen. I want you actually to turn to each other and answer this. How open and curious do you feel towards scripture? You could do a scale of one to five, if that helps you. Five is like red hot. I love scripture. Bring it on. Or zero is I don't feel anything, but I might be open. I don't know. Or somewhere in between. So Turn to each other in groups of three and answer this question. How open and curious do you feel towards scripture?
If the second or third person hasn't talked yet, switch. If I take seriously these ingredients to try to cultivate love for scripture in myself or someone around me, or create an opportunity for others around me, I need the scriptures. I need ample time, like no time pressure or hurry up. Like if I only have five minutes, why am I trying to read an entire chapter and reflect and pray on it? Just read one verse. I need no agenda. This is an opportunity for relationship, not a tool to use. I need community, openness, curiosity. If I have all those things, you might notice the last two are a little different. The first four, if I'm, let's say, leading scripture for people, I can just do them. They are under my control for myself or for other people if I'm leading. The last two are hard to get in myself, let alone other people. I can't get someone else to be open or curious. So then how do I cultivate those? If I'm cultivating love for scripture, and here I'm saying, please, your posture towards scripture, learn how to love scripture above all, how do you cultivate curiosity and openness? I'll tell you the answer that I've known so far is questions. The power of questions, harnessing the power of questions. What questions am I curious enough and courageous enough to ask of God or of scripture? On the other side, what questions might God ask me, and am I open enough to be ready to respond? So let me show you that as we enter John 5, 1 through 9 right now. Now before we exactly read the text, I need to tell you a few things about it. Who is John? Why did he write this? Remember, John was one of the 12 closest followers of Jesus. A few decades after the life of Jesus, John wrote down his experiences and his interpretation of what was happening with this Jesus guy. He wrote to Greek-speaking Jews who were scattered around. Most of them that he was thinking of when he wrote were not followers of Jesus, because if we were to ask John, John, why did you write this? He'd be like, hello, I put it in chapter 20. I'm going to read a verse from chapter 20. John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's clear. I wrote this so that you can see that Jesus is the Messiah and so that you can believe. So every time we read part of the book of John, we wonder, how is this helping me realize Jesus is the Messiah? How would this help the first readers of this realize Jesus is the Messiah, so that they could believe, so that I can believe, and therefore have life. Before the part that we're about to read in chapter 5, Jesus has been doing many things. John chapter 4 is so famous, because remember, Jesus meets this woman at the well, and he offers her living water, and she's like, what? And they have this whole exchange until suddenly he actually reveals to her so clearly, which he doesn't do very often, he just says, the one you're waiting for, it's me. I'm the Messiah. Then she goes and tells her whole town. And then Jesus spends two days with them, telling more about who he is. Why? So that they can know he's the Messiah and be able to believe 
and therefore have life in his name. And then Jesus also returns to his hometown, Galilee, Capernaum, and heals a royal official's son. So all that has happened when we enter in and are able to see sometime later, after all those things that had happened, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Even right now, as we engage this, I'll, I'll lead us through as we wonder about the text, I want us to adopt a posture of curiosity, to let the curiosity burn that you're just like, I have to ask this question. It's like John's begging me to ask this question. I think he wrote it this way in order to get me to wonder about why this, why that. I'd even say the whole Bible's that way. The whole Bible is so that people would ask and go deeper. Why does Jesus even teach the way he does or tell parables? Because he wants people to hear what he's saying and wonder about it and go to him and ask. So we are faithful every time we encounter scripture if we are saying, but wait, what? How do I, hold on, let me ask this question as I engage. So I have to get past, like I said, any qualms that I have about curiosity or I just think, oh, curiosity is for kids. Adults already know what it means. No, we don't, first of all. Anytime somebody says, it's very clear in scripture that, I think, okay, hold on, I'm very cautious, because scripture's clear about some things, but a lot, scripture's not clear, and scripture invites us to pursue and ask questions. But I would say we're probably afraid sometimes to ask questions, because even in a simple, seemingly, passage like this, a question might actually awaken, like, hope or desire that's really uncomfortable to feel. If I already know what this means and I've read it before and, oh yeah, Jesus can heal, awesome, and move on to the next passage, that's easier. It's not risky. But if I am wondering, why are you like this, Jesus? Why would you ask that question? Why did you ask a man who's been hurting for 38 years if he wants change, that kind of question makes me have to deal with my own pain, my own desire, my own lack of hope or failed hope or my own disillusionment. So questions and curiosity when we're coming to God or when we're coming to scripture can be very uncomfortable. But it's a sign of our faith if we're willing to go there anyway. And that way questions feel dangerous, but actually questions when we come to scripture or Notice in this passage, Jesus asks the man a question. So the questions I bring and also the questions I'm willing to receive when I encounter Jesus, it's just good for relationships. Questions are good for cultivating all relationship, learning how to show interest in God, in the Bible, in other people. This is a little bit funny, but I recently heard a story about a student who is so excited 
not about Bible study, but about a date that she had that night. She was talking to her staff person. So on all these campuses, we have student groups, students leading each other in Bible study, prayer, outreach, everything that you can imagine you want students and their faith to do on campus. And there's a mentor, a staff, somebody like me on the campus coaching these student leaders. And the student leader is like, I'm so nervous but so excited. I have a date tonight. And I think I'm ready because I've got the four stories that I need to tell him. And I really like this guy, so I'm going to tell him this story about me, and this story, and this story, and this story. And the staff was like, okay, hold on. Let's sit down for a second. I see why you want to tell some stories. Uh, I know that that's sort of what social media is like. You kind of put this thing out there about yourself. Do you like me or not? But have you considered that maybe you could think of some questions to ask him? Because a question shows I'm interested in you and I'd love to get to know you more. Just telling about yourself, he could be there or not be there, and it'd be sort of the same for you. But if you learn how to ask him questions, so then they did a little process, simple questions like, where are you from? Why'd you choose this campus? You know, very easy questions, but teaching her that that's the posture to have, not just in this relationship, but even as you come to scripture. So we have to be teaching students this posture. So if, to any of you this is new and you're like, ah, this is so weird, getting curious, it doesn't necessarily come naturally. Our culture tells us you must already know this. You must automatically be able to distill everything and understand it without having to ask. Get it together. God invites us to ask questions. So when I read this chapter, John 5, I get really upset almost. And if I let that drive me to questions, that's a way to display my faith. Here's a question that I'm dying to ask when I read this passage. Almost like John is like tapping me on the shoulder, like, Christy, I wrote this so that you could wonder this. What was it like to be this man? 38 years. Why does he tell us that it's been that long? Like, what's it like to long for healing for 38 years? Maybe people helped him back in the beginning but all his help seems to have abandoned him. And these sort of healing pools were common in their day. It was a shrine where the promise of worshiping a God who could heal you was that, you know, travel all, all the way to this place, worship at this shrine, but before you worship at the shrine, cleanse yourself in this pool. Well, what if your reason for needing to worship the God who can heal you prevents you from physically being able to get into the pool so that you can purify yourself and therefore worship the God? let alone whether this God is real or can do anything. What was this man supposed to do? He's stuck. He's been there for that long, waiting. I don't know what that would be like. But this, this text makes me need to, answer, to ask that question. Another big question, which I won't go into, is just simply like, who is this Jesus guy? Like, who can heal this way so quickly? And... It makes me want to read the rest of the book of John. If I'm reading through, then that would be a faithful response. Who is this guy? Oh, I need to know more. Go to chapter 6. Keep reading, keep reading, because John is highly motivated to help us understand who is Jesus. But it gets me to the question that I hinted at earlier that really bothers me. Why does Jesus ask this man, do you want to get well? Why? Doesn't he know the answer? All these things come up. So the first thing is, I just want to say, I don't like this question at all. I can read this whole passage and omit that question, and it makes a lot more sense. Because Jesus comes in, oh, look, this guy needs healing, heals him, 
and then he moves on to the next thing. Or maybe the guy shows some sort of faith. Sometimes the authors help us see that the person showed faith, sometimes not. I don't know, but why does he ask this question? Is he doing something kind of like, do you want to get well? I mean, you, hey, you down there, like, seems like you've been down there a while. Like, do you want to get well? No, I don't think Jesus would, that's not his tone, right? I, he couldn't have been like, do you want to get well sarcastically? Or I don't think he's jabbing the man. I don't, right, God? You would, no, no, he can't be doing that. So I like rule that out in my mind. But then if I'm the man, I'm like, this is a very personal, intrusive question, stranger, who just approached me. Because I've been here for 38 years. I'm stuck. I've got no results. I'm alone. No one's helping me. I'm desperate. Every single time that someone else gets down to the water and I didn't make it there, it's another layer of disappointment. Do I want to get well? Like, why would you ask me that? Like, why else would I be here? Of course I want to get well. Why, why Jesus? Or as the reader, I can stay a little detached from it because I'm intellectually being like, well, Jesus knows everything, so why would he ask something if he already knows the answer? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Help me understand. It's such an intrusive question. God, why would you ask questions if you already know the answer? Ten years ago, <clears throat> my husband and I were preparing to get married, and we were talking about how to fit two entire adult-sized households of furniture into one small apartment. It was small because we were moving to San Diego. And I really wanted to keep my favorite couch, and I think Marvin also wanted me to get to keep my favorite couch, but just how could it fit? Like We were having trouble figuring out what to keep and what to get rid of. Later on that day, I was at my old house before moving here, cutting the grass. I remember, because I, I had a lot of frustrated energy pushing the mower, you know, going really fast, kind of striving to get this task done so that I could feel good again. And suddenly, God said to me, not like in stereo, but just this idea came to my mind that I did not think up myself, and it definitely seemed like a question that God would want to ask me. So I would say, God said to me, Christy, don't you see that saying yes to Marvin is saying yes to me and following me? Now, God knew that my answer to that question was basically like, no, what are you talking about? Or that I wasn't making any sort of connection like that. I was just thinking about this couch, but I didn't know the answer to that question until it was asked of me. And that question did a number of things to me. First, it made me stop caring so much about the couch because I was realizing if I'm stepping out to accept something so good in this future with this man and all this change in my life that would come along with it, and I'm saying yes to God, of course I'm gonna be okay. So that's the first thing that it did to me. The second thing it did to me was make me realize this conversation's really not about the couch, it's about all my fears and my control. Okay, of course, that's still an issue in my life. But the degree of change that I was accepting was the main issue, not the couch. Like, I was in love, I still am. And saying yes to my husband meant leaving behind everything and everyone I knew changing jobs, becoming a stepmom, and I was scared. So I was clinging, clinging to control, not clinging to God, and clinging to control looked like clinging to this couch, which, by the way, it did work out. We, we were able to fit both couches. So it's a, it's a happy end to that part of the story. But what if I hadn't been open to hearing that question from God? 
Best case, I would have just argued a little bit more about the couch, and who knows, maybe we would have gotten through it, probably. Worst case, I would have lodged a little bit of resentment in my heart that I didn't get what I wanted, and I'm giving up too much, and when's anyone going to listen to me? and all my needs, just the selfishness that would have been lodged there in that resentment, and I would have been totally unaware that I'm obsessed with this thing, but actually I'm resisting God and God's invitation to real teamwork with this person that I'm saying yes to. Questions from God are not just about getting answers, but about the impact that being asked that question does. It's an invitation to step closer, to pay attention, to be ready. So I wonder for this man, 38 years, longing for healing, waiting, 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 lonely. Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? What was that question supposed to do for the man? I don't think Jesus needed the answer. But what did that question do to the man? Did it, did it reawaken hope? Is that what he needed? Did that question invite him to depend and to be willing he needed help, but yet was he independent at the same time? Did that question confront his detachment? I mean, 38 years is a long time. I, it only takes me five, 10 minutes, maybe a day, to get numb when I don't get what I want. Like, forget it, I don't want that anymore. Was it an, confronting his detachment and the dead hope and asking him to care again about his healing? I'll ask you to turn to each other again. This question will be harder, turning up the temperature a little bit on the question. But what questions do you carry, whether from God or someone else? Whether for God or from God? Maybe a question that you're like, I've asked this of God so many times, I can't ask anymore. I've stopped asking. Or maybe there's a question that you know God's been bringing to you, and you just need to remember that it's still there, and he's doing something in your life through it. So what questions do you carry, whether for, for God or from God? Answer that a little bit to each other for a couple minutes.
If you have a question, I hope you were able to say it out loud. Even if the one you said out loud was you know, one layer, but actually underneath there's all these other questions that you're kind of afraid to say out loud, that's okay. I encourage you, when you notice a question that you have for God or about the Bible, or you're sensing a question from God, breathe life into it. Like if it's a little ember, fan it into flame. Questions do something with us, to us, for us, as we engage scripture. So I, I wanted you to bring to mind and to say out loud a question. Could even be about this passage. The questions that I bring are what God's wrestling with me about and inviting me to wrestle with him about. There might be something different for you. But we also need to wonder, as we put ourselves in the shoes of this man, what was it like to receive that question? What was this encounter like? He received healing. Jesus heals a lot of people. That's a common story in Scripture. But what's going on with this question? What's happening between Jesus and the man? We also need to wonder, John, you wrote this down. Why did you write this down for the community of believers? How was this to help people know that Jesus is the Messiah so they could believe and have life? There's something not just about the healing, but about the way Jesus interacts with the man. It was part of that revelation of himself as Messiah so that people could believe and have life. John wrote this down after Jesus had asked the man a challenging question. Now we have the Gospel of John. And so we have to ask, God, through this Gospel, what are you asking us? What areas do we have that need to be made well? This could be true for you individually. I mean, physical healing's an obvious one. That's what ha happened for the man in the passage. Mental and emotional healing, where you need to be made well. Relationship healing, needs that you have that are not being met. And I don't mean someone else needs to get their act together to meet it for you. I mean, God is paying attention and wants to do something to meet needs that you have any kind of pain or unrest, areas that you have, if, if Jesus were to say, do you want to be made well? If somebody saw you and saw the area where you needed to be made well and asked you, do you want to be made well? You'd say, yes, please. Where is that in your life? But I also have to ask it bigger for a community, for the church community, for the city of San Diego. What are areas where Jesus could say, do you want to be made well in that area? I see what you're doing and what you're going for, but do you really want to be made well? I want to make you well. Do you want to be made well? And as we ask ourselves that question, we also have to wonder, what is getting in the way? Let's say my answer is no. Do I want to be made well or do we want to be made well? If we're thinking, well, hold, okay, if the answer isn't a resounding yes, then why not? Have we been waiting too long for healing? And so it's hard to admit, yes, I want that, because it awakens all that discomfort, the danger of hope. Does it get in the way of something we've been substituting for that hope? Some other thing that we've been doing to cope so that I don't have to really want real healing, I can just be content with this subpar thing because it's so much easier. And I don't want to stop doing or feeling or thinking that in order to really long for the healing that Jesus wants to bring. 
But we always have to ask ourselves, Jesus, what are you asking of me or us as we read this text together? I won't make us say that one out loud. That's hard to answer. And the question, the answer might just be like, I don't know yet. But I'd encourage you, engaging scripture is not just about I read it and then I moved on, but come back to this passage, maybe later today, maybe tomorrow, and continually ask, where is my curiosity about this? What is God inviting me to ask? And what is God asking me? Am I curious enough to ask those questions? Am I open enough to receive that question back from God about myself? But I could, if I could give you one thing as you engage scripture, this is the, the heart of what we bring to students is to say, pursue meeting God when you go to engage scripture. It's not about the mind or exactly understanding or finding rules to follow or finding information to back up your argument. Scripture is a place to meet with God. So be curious, be open, cultivate that love. Even in this text, when Jesus asks that man the question, like I said, it's not primarily about getting the answer from the man so that it would like unlock Jesus's healing or some kind of weird exchange that must happen. There's something else going on in that relationship that causes Jesus to ask that question. And John answers that for us, is so that we can know Jesus is the Messiah and believe and have life. If you've read the book of John before, I'll take us through a couple things that happened before chapter 5, because I want to show this is something Jesus is always constantly doing. If I'm asking that question of this passage, who is this Jesus guy? Hold on, rewind, let me go back to John chapter 1 and read again, asking that question. I'd find in chapter 2, Jesus goes to this wedding, and they run out of wine, so he turns a ton of water into wine so the party can continue, and the hosts don't suffer any shame in front of all their guests. However, the only people who know that this miracle happened in the moment are the mom of Jesus, who kind of prods him into doing it, and the servants. So Jesus is again revealing here's who I am. I'm the Messiah. Do you want to believe? Lowest people at this party who weren't really even invited, you're just paid to be here, but you're the ones who get to see. I'm the Messiah. I want you to be able to believe. I want you to be able to have life. And then fast forward a little bit. We all know that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, etc. That's in a conversation when Jesus is talking to this religious leader named Nicodemus. They're talking about weird stuff like being born again, being born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is like, does that mean I get back into my mother? And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's weird. I'm talking about something else. But what's Jesus doing in that? He's saying strange things that cause Nicodemus to ask questions. And implied is the question back to him, like, Nicodemus, do you want this? But in that whole exchange, Jesus is showing, I'm the Messiah. I want you to be able to have life. I'm giving you some things that will help you be able to believe. And then remember, I already mentioned John chapter 4. Jesus goes up to a woman at the well who's suffering shame and isolation. They have an entire conversation about what it would mean to have living water, but Jesus is speaking metaphorically. But the kind of water and life that could satisfy you forever, more than anything else you seek. Why is Jesus saying that to her? Because he wants her to be curious he wants her to come to him. He's asking her, do you want living water so you'd never have to come back to this well? She's confused by that question, but between them as these questions happening are happening, Jesus is saying, 
I'm the Messiah. I want you to be able to believe so that you can have life. And here, same thing. There's a man who's suffering for a long time. There's a question implied toward God. Could you please heal me just by his presence there? Yet maybe he's forgotten to ask that question for years. Who knows? But Jesus brings him a question that does the same thing. I want you to know who I am. Because do you want to get well? You're about to get well, and I'm the one who's about to do it. Watch this. And in that exchange, I'm showing you that I'm the Messiah so that you can believe, so that you can have life. So those questions have to resonate to us. Like, are we willing to ask questions of God? Are we willing to receive those questions? I could give you all the training and practical steps about how to study the Bible. I could have spent a half an hour just now giving you, here are the five steps to study the Bible. Make sure you follow them. Here's a website to go to so that you can remember all the steps. But if you don't have a pursuing scripture kind of love for God's word, those steps sort of fall on dead ears. I'd instead encourage you, what we do as students is help them cultivate love for scripture because that begins a lifelong pattern of pursuing God, wanting to meet with God in scripture. Now, if you want practical steps, see me after the service. I can give you that website, and I can tell you the practical steps. But those steps have to be fed into a space of longing and wanting to grow in that love for the word. So thank you for your patience, your, your uh, attention, and I look forward to meeting and talking to you and catching up with many of you after the service. Christy, can I have you actually stay up here? If you're comfortable with a little kind of impromptu moment, I just want to glean a little bit more and learn a little bit more if that's okay and just kind of do it sure. publicly. Sure. Um, questions that are just turning in my mind is you've modeled for us having people ask questions without trying to control the tension of that. Right, because I think a lot of times the, I think you think as a parent, like, hey, what are the questions you have about God? Okay, see you later, right? Like kind of a little bit is what happened in that moment. What are you, what are you believing about or trusting about God that you could stir up questions without trying to run in with the answer? That's good. I would actually say our desire as people to have conclusive, distilled, comforting answers to all our questions is not, I wouldn't necessarily say just a human thing. I would say it's like a Western culture thing. So around the world, there are many people who are way more comfortable than us with the tension and the lack of conclusion. So that's one thing that helps me hold that tension and be okay with it. Yeah. And I have to recognize that when I, for myself, want a clear answer, or maybe for you know, a young college student is asking me a question, I want them to have a conclusive answer, that is a sign of or a symptom of my need for control more than it is a reality. Yeah. It is okay to have unopened questions for a long time. But what I would describe is instead of, you know, having a list of questions answered, 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 ta-da, now you have faith. Instead, I would want to show interesting question. Here are some answers, but I don't know but here are some answers to this, but I don't know. I have to identify it's my obsession with trying to control or our obsession as a culture trying to control that doesn't like saying, we don't really know the answer to that. Here's how much we know, here's how much we don't know. 
but let the questions be this big and my faith be this big, rather than saying these questions must disappear in order to show I have faith. So it's, it's cultivating, even in that love for scripture, it's a comfort with questions remaining unanswered because it's not about the intellect, it's about relationship. And I don't need every question answered in relationships that I have. I need to pursue the relationship and the questions therefore kind of find their smaller place. My goodness. It was really good. Um, is that what you're hoping for? Yeah. Or, well, I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and it just gets even more questions and more questions, right? Um, how about, I mean, to some degree, it was for individuals like waking up, having a hunger for the Lord, approach scripture and have this curiosity and this wonder. Any recommendations for, because I know that there's groups of people to get together or, or couples that will get together to study scripture with one another, you know, people that do coffee or something in the morning. Um, any recommendations for how to cultivate this environment of curiosity amongst groups as they approach scripture together? Yeah, good question. So. The first would be the concrete answer, like those six ingredients, which you don't have to memorize the ingredients, but just the main purpose, don't treat scripture like a tool. Come to scripture with ample time, be curious, be open. But the bigger reason that I'm saying all of those things is le it's less about here is the exact formula. It's more about might I treat engaging scripture the way that I treat engaging a relationship that I really want to see grow. Hmm. What are things that I do in a relationship that I really want to see grow? I spend plenty of time. I don't say, we only have 10 minutes and here's what I must get from this. I just sit with the person and see how long it takes and we chat and, and, and it's a relationship. I don't treat it like, if this isn't fireworks every single time I talk to you, then I'm done with you. Hmm. No, we don't do that. We spend time anyway and we develop a habit of being with a person. I could talk about a best friend or a marriage or a parent-child relationship or a neighbor. In all of those, I, am, I recognize that there are ups and downs and in-betweens, yeah. and I still pursue the relationship anyway, but somehow with scripture, we don't do that. We're like, I don't really feel anything about it right now. Scripture's dry for me, so I'm just gonna walk away from it for a while, or I don't quite understand this, so it's not worth reading. We would never do that to somebody that we love. And I'm, not cult I'm not trying to talk about love scripture ultimately. I'm talking about loving Jesus and what is a great way to encounter, be with Jesus, love Jesus, is by loving his words, like literally what he said in the gospels, but also God's words. So it, the big thing to answer that is about what do I think I'm studying the Bible for hmm. when I sit together with other people? It's so that we together can be in relationship with Jesus, not so we can get all the right answers and learn and then push it on our neighbor. No, it's so that I can have a loving relationship with Jesus and that then I'm inviting my neighbor who might want to study the Bible into that relationship versus trying to just give them information. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Christy. Can we extend our gratitude for Christy again?